Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Porter Gals presents Terrifying Tales. Hi, I'm Debbie. And I'm Allison. And we're... The Polter Gals. Spooky. <laughs> Christmas Ghost Story. Written by Nick DiMarantino. Published in 2022 by Northwest Corner Books. Chapter 14. Buried Alive. The Other Side. Alert for the slightest sound, Gina descended the staircase and crossed the empty basement. She stopped at the foot of the three short wooden stairs leading up to the cantina door. Aaron, whispered Gina. She thought she heard muffled rustling. Aaron, is that you? She stepped into the small, damp enclosure. Something loomed before her face like a shrunken head. The light bulb dangled on its string. She flicked the light switch. The bulb flared, flickered. Barely enough light, but enough. The cantina smelled of earth and old wooden boards. Aaron was not in there. That much was certain. Just two big wine barrels in the ancient fuse box and walls lined with planks of shelving. Gina took a step inside, another step. Then she turned around and braced the cantina door open so that she wouldn't accidentally become closed inside. Listening for the slightest sound, she noticed something on the ground, a mouse, its neck broken by a trap, curled up in a lifeless, wet furball. She shuddered, backed away from it, and looked again. Not a dead mouse. A soaked, balled-up stocking. Aaron's stocking. She picked up the soaping wad of wool in quiet panic her imagination scrambling desperately for an explanation. Then she saw something else on the floor, lying between the large wooden barrels. Aaron's flashlight. What was it doing down there? She squatted and stretched out an arm between the two barrels, just out of reach. Grabbing the bottom shelf, she braced herself to stretch further. Her fingers closed around the flashlight. The moment she switched on its beam, the wall abruptly collapsed under her weight. What looked like a wall slid away and swung open. With a cry, Gina fell through. She landed on a body. She screamed. She was still screaming as the concealed door slid shut behind her, closing her into an icky darkness. A darkness that would have swallowed her had it not been for the leaping, rolling ray of the flashlight. The beam lurched and ricocheted over the walls. Then the light lanced downward onto a face. It was Aaron. He lay under a thick, old plank of wood that appeared to be a fallen shelf on the other side of the fake wall. His face was pale gray, his forehead caked with dried blood. His rain jacket was spread out beneath him 
like a dirty, wrinkled plastic tarp. He moaned. She became frantic, but managed to retain her presence of mind long enough to prop up the flashlight and drag the fallen shelf off him. He groaned. Careful. Don't move. He moved. Slowly. Cautiously. Oh, Aaron, are you okay? Maybe not okay, but alive, he said. I don't think anything's broken. Your head looks broken, she said. This old plank must have whacked you a good one. I think they all took turns. I found you. What's left of me? She covered his mouth with wild, insane kisses. I was so worried I was half out of my mind. She was crying and laughing at the same time. I love you so much, I was so afraid. She suddenly stopped kissing him. You could be seriously hurt. Something could be broken. Nothing broken that wasn't broken before. But my head feels like it's just barely holding the pieces together. He squinted blindly into the surrounding darkness. Where exactly am I? On the other side of the cantina, behind the wine barrels. She peered into the blackness, poking at it with the flashlight beam. For some reason, there is a secret room. The room was not only secret, but filthy with disuse. The cobwebs alone were proof that it hadn't been touched in years. It wasn't large, just wide enough for Aaron to be stretched across the crude cement floor. Aiming the flashlight, Gina took a step beyond Aaron. That was all it took for the beam of light to reveal the room's purpose. Hanging on the wall beneath a carved wooden crucifix was a framed old-fashioned photograph of a very young child. A smiling little Italian kid was looking at the camera. He was flanked by several smaller photos, all pictures of the same dark-haired, dark-eyed little boy. That face, said Aaron. I've seen that kid before. At first, he couldn't remember where. Then, it hit him. The day I fell off the ladder. That's him. That's who I saw in the window. Boxes of children's clothes, toys, marbles, stuffed animals. An old wooden crib with rockers was the centerpiece of the shrine. It was elaborately painted with laughing clown faces and circus stripes. The initials V-A-R were elaborately engraved over the headboard. A wooden plaque hung above the framed photograph in the crib. The name engraved across it was Vito Angelo Rossi. Beneath the name was carved 3 February 1918 to 24th December 1919. That's it, said Gina. That's the word. Vito. What did you say? That's what she was saying, said Gina. She was repeating it over and over again. Vito. Vito. Now, Gina knew why. Grandpa had not been Nana's only son. He had been her only living son. Her only surviving son. That's why Nana could never stop clinging to Grandpa. Because her first son, her little Vito, had been cruelly snatched away. In the garden. Flashlight in hand, they slid open the secret door from the inside. She supported his weight with one of her arms wrapped around him. Just up this one step, lean on me. With the flashlight beam leading the way, she helped Aaron back into the cantina.
propping him against one of the wine barrels. Gina swatted at his ruined clothes, brushing off the dirt and grime and dried blood that covered him. You look disgusting, she said. You are not exactly spotless yourself. Then she noticed that the door of the cantina was closed. I thought I propped that open. Stay here. Don't move. She crossed the cantina in a few quick, nervous strides and pushed open the small door. It swung out into the dark basement. She meant to simply brace the door and then return to help Aaron. From the moment she opened the cantina door, she never looked back. The basement door on the far side of the room blew suddenly open, clattering against the wall. A howling gust of wind and snow rushed inside. From the open door, from the snowy confusion of the night, came the sound of a child crying. She could just barely hear it. The moment she did, she stopped hearing everything else. Gina, what is it? called Aaron from inside the cantina. She didn't hear his question. She had forgotten all about him. Descending the three stairs out of the cantina, she headed across the snow-invaded basement toward the open door and the roaring whiteness outside. Gina, where are you going? called a voice behind her, but the words had no more effect on her than the snow blowing in her face. She had crossed the basement and was almost at the door when the shovel propped against the wall and tangled with a rake and broom and other guarding equipment toppled forward, clattering on the floor at her feet. Gina didn't find it surprising. She simply bent down, grabbed the shovel by the handle, and took it along with her. With no thought of the cold, she walked out of the basement door. Gina, come back. The words echoing behind her hardly mattered. What mattered was the child crying. What mattered was the square of whiteness before her, outlined by stark, leafless bean poles and the snow-covered raspberry barrier. What mattered was dragging the shovel behind her toward what was waiting for her in the vegetable garden. Gina! She stopped and gripped the handle of the shovel with both hands. It sliced down into the frozen white blanket covering the garden. It shouldn't have cut so easily. Again and again, she drove it down, upturning chunks of winter-hardened earth and the mist of the snowstorm. She was digging a hole. The ground was hard with ice, but her shovel possessed a strength far beyond her, deeper and deeper. By the time Aaron hobbled up to her, rain jacket flapping behind him, and dragged the shovel out of her hands, she had uncovered one corner of an old wooden box. Gina, stop. There it is, she cried. That's it, Aaron. That's what it's all about. Can't you feel it? All the trouble comes from here. It's the same place I was digging that night. The same place. Give me back the shovel. Stop it, Gina. Let's go. She didn't wait for the shovel or anything else. She fell on her knees into the whiteness, pawing away the remaining snow and earth with numb, bloodless fingers. Gina, stop. She clawed open the lid. The rotting box crumbled in her hands. The stench of death, bones, and a red rubber ball. No more secrets. Lou held his wife in his arms, 
surrounded by his family. The only grandchild, not accounted for, now opened the door below them. Wet with snow, red-cheeked with the cold, Gina quickly ascended the staircase to the upper floor beside her boyfriend, moving at a slower but urgent hobble. His forehead caked with blood. What happened? cried Barbara anxiously. But Gina interrupted her. Grandpa, she said, in the garden. Something just led me. I mean, I walked right to it. I just started digging, and I found a box. And Grandpa, inside it are bones. Lou was the only one who didn't gasp in horror. He sighed. You knew about it, said Gina. Aunt Joe is right, he said. Too many secrets in this family. Maybe you need to know them all. Know what, said Gina. Know about Nana's other son? Know about your brother, Grandpa? Lou winced. Yes, that's what I mean. The whole story. About what happened to Vito and to Nana. It had been painful enough, keeping it hidden in his heart. The time had come to tell. I never knew my little brother, said Lou. Mom and Dad never talked about him. He was just a big, painful silence that happened before I came along. One of the last things Dad did before I joined the Navy was tell me about Vito, to tell me how he died. It happened on Christmas Eve. He wasn't quite two years old. He had been a total pest for hours that day, according to my father. A terrible little troublemaker with his rubber ball, bouncing it all over the place, getting in my mother's way. He broke one of her favorite vases. Then he caused her to burn a batch of Christmas cookies. She had to open all the windows, and it was cold, to let the smoke out of the house. Your Nana had left him alone just long enough to take something out of the oven. Nobody knows for sure what happened. Vito was playing in the hall. His ball must have bounced into the bedroom and out the open bedroom window. They found it afterward in the garden. When my mother finally tracked him down, she found Vito up on the bedroom windowsill, hanging over the edge, trying to see where the ball went. She was so shocked and scared for his safety that she screamed, her scream. He lost his balance and fell. His head hit one of the two cement stairs, leading down to the basement door. My mother never stopped blaming herself. A hush settled over them all. How awful, said Gina. Then the bones in the garden. In those days, said Lou, immigrants sometimes did things their own way. The codes weren't so strict. My father said it was impossible to get the dead kid out of her arms. She went sort of crazy. He let her bury him out back. Not much of a burial place for a baby, said Sam. A vegetable patch isn't exactly concentrated ground. Maybe that's the problem, said Gina. Maybe it just seemed like a good solution at the time. It was sacred ground to my mother, said Lou. Maybe that's why something led you right to that spot where the bones were buried, said Aaron. I'll bet your Nana can't get to him there. Well then, I think we should do Nana a favor, said her father, and give the kid a decent resting place.
Impulsively, Gina reached out and squeezed her father's hand. I think Nana would like that very much. I think that's what Nana wants. Is losing her baby why Nana went crazy? asked Wally. That happened before I was born, said Lou. Everyone thought she had gotten over it. It wasn't until years later, near the very end, that Vito started coming up more and more. She couldn't remember where she left her knitting needles five minutes ago, but she couldn't forget Vito. She became obsessed with the idea that he was still here, that she had misplaced him somewhere in the house. Sometimes when I stopped by after work, I would find her all worked up, going from room to room, calling a little boy who had been dead for over 70 years. It got worse. One day, on one of her wanderings downtown, my mother came across some little toddler all by himself in a department store. She thought she had finally found her veto. She walked right out of the store with him. Fortunately, she was stopped by the store detectives. They phoned me out at the real estate office. I had to go get her downtown. The parents were so happy to have their kid back, they didn't press charges. That same day, I made arrangements with the nursing home. I didn't have any choice. I tried to tell her she'd be moving. That's when she started hiding from me. Usually, I could find her in one of the rooms. The hardest place to find her was up in the attic. And the where? Interrupted Gina. The closet at the end of the East Hall has a little staircase, he began. But again, she cut him off. Yes, I found it, said Gina. But it goes nowhere. It doesn't go nowhere, interrupted her father, Sam. I can tell you from experience that it very definitely goes somewhere. It leads to an attic over the second floor. Somebody sealed it off with a panel of wood. I'm the one who sealed it off, said Lou. That's why I never mentioned it. I never wanted to see it again. I fought with her up there. I wrestled with my desperate, crazy mother. I was sick of dragging her out of there. So I boarded it up. The day she discovered that it was walled off, she went out of control, running from room to room, not making sense, kicking and struggling, pulling away from me. She was frantic to find Vito. She kept calling him and hiding from me and crying when I found her. Then before I realized what she was doing, she got away from me and ran over to the window that Vito fell out of. And she just, he couldn't go on. He'd said enough. It's her. Lou looked up. Someone was standing halfway down the hall. The figure was blurry and slightly faded. But there was no doubt who it was. Lou, it's her, whispered Gloria, clawing at his arm. Rachel screamed. Sam drew his daughter to him, held her against him while he stared. Nana was wearing the pink sweater she had knitted herself. Her old apron from the produce stand on Beacon Avenue was tied around her waist. Her hair streaked with gray was tightly coiled into a bun. Her face began to contort. Her mouth twisted open. She was trying to tell him something it hurt too much to say. Before he could try to comfort her, try to understand her, he saw his older son, Tony, step forward. 
Nana, he stammered bravely. She cried out, her voice echoing with a wall-rattling pain. She clawed at her hair, tearing apart the neat coils of the bun, leaving her long gray locks wild and scattered. Tony stumbled backward in sheer terror, tripped over his own feet, and fell sprawling on the floor. She didn't seem to see her favorite grandson. What was left of Nana was in terrible pain. She gave another cry. An icy wind surged around her. The sound of his mother's voice cut through Lou like jagged glass. He clambered up onto his feet and helped Gloria rise beside him. A shuffling rush of footsteps. Nana was gone. She had suddenly disappeared from the hallway, fleeing into one of the far rooms. Lee forced himself to follow her. He approached the doorway. Gloria was right behind him. Another patter of footfalls. She was a little more than a moving darkness in the shadows of the far corner. He stepped closer, his wife pressed to his side, clutching him. Mother. The foggy image turned to face him. Dead eyes from the past seemed to stare straight through him, eyes harrowed by pain. Mom, we want to help you, he said. I know how unhappy you are. Her well rang down the hallway. I had no choice, Mom, he cried. You couldn't take care of yourself. I had to do what I thought was best. Aaron grabbed at her arm, trying to stop her, but she pulled away from him. Tana, please, she said, stepping toward her, trying not to shake as she felt the icy chill. We're your family. We're your children. We need to give us. You need to give us your love, Nana. And I promise, I promise you, my baby. An otherworldly chill seemed to pass straight through Gina. She didn't understand what had happened until she detected a small, rippling distortion hurtling toward the image of Nana. A child's skill of recognition. A mother's sob of joy. Nana was suddenly clutching her lost veto in her arms, a bundle of arms and legs and laughter. A shriek of pure release rang through the halls and rooms of Nana's house. The blurry figure seemed to become one, to disintegrate, collapse, dissolving into the shadows. Gina's knees might have buckled out from under her if Aaron hadn't come up beside her. Grandpa took his wife into his arms. Her shoulders were shaking. Grandma was crying. Now you stop that, he said to her. You are fine, and so am I. Lou held her warmingly against his heart. This whole family's fine. Better than we've been in a long time. Gloria sniffed. We better start making the beds, or no one's going to get any sleep tonight. Be sure to follow us on Facebook or on YouTube at The Porter Gals or on Instagram at the underscore Porter Gals. You can also find us wherever you get your podcast or at roguemedianetwork.com. You've been listening to The Polter Gals, a Rogue Media Network podcast. This has been a Rogue Media podcast.